From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The draft of the new Polaris small business contract from the General Services Administration is officially on the street. GSA says the contract will include pools for small businesses, women-owned small businesses, and companies in hub zones. NextGov reports the contract will run for five years with a five-year option. Two-thirds of major information technology programs the Government Accountability Office looked at at the Pentagon fell behind schedule during development. Only about half of the 15 programs GAO looked at did cybersecurity vulnerability assessments. The agency found one of the 15 programs used a waterfall approach. Another one combined an iterative approach with waterfall. The State Department has its first ever chief data officer. Matthew Gravis has joined the department from the Department of Homeland Security. NextGov reports his last post to DHS was as the chief data officer at Citizenship and Immigration Services. He was the first CDO there, too. Five agencies have falling grades on the latest IT modernization report card. The latest Federal IT Acquisition Reform Act scorecard shows 16 agencies kept their grades the same. Three improved, but no agency got an A. Dave Pounder is executive director of the Center for Data-Driven Policy and director of strategic engagement and partnerships at MITRE. He's former director of IT issues at the Government Accountability Office. Dave, welcome. You're, you, you won't take credit for it probably, but you're the author of this scorecard essentially and one of the first graders on this scorecard. What's your takeaway from number 11, Dave? Well, I thought on number 11, it's nice to see the evolution of the scorecard, Francis. You know, we talked after scorecard 10, and I testified at that hearing. It's good to see the, the scorecard evolve. You know, software licensing was dropped off. All agencies had A's. They added a very important category on the EIS, uh, you know, the modern network uh, contract at GSA that we need to have in place so that our IT sits on a modern infrastructure. I think, you know, with the upcoming dates there on EIS, it's very encouraging to see Chairman Connolly and Ranking Member Heist continue that evolution of the scorecard. And I think going forward, there's some other categories that, you know, they've kind of run their course and that we're going to see even more, uh, you know, changes to the scorecard. You know, cyber is a good area when you start looking at supply chain risk management. You'd mentioned it, the intro on vulnerability management. Those types of metrics probably do need to be added to the cyber category. And that's what we testified to in August. And I know you and I talked to that. So the continued evolution is really where we need to go. There are, not everybody agrees with you. There are some folks that I've heard from in agencies and some folks that have been vocal on social media and other places that the scorecard's a moving target and the numbers aren't fair, uh, the, the rates aren't fair. You obviously don't agree with that, why so? Well, here's the deal. You added EIS, right? Uh, EIS has been around for a while. There's been some slip dates. It's very important to have that modern infrastructure to have really true IT modernization. The other thing is that the committee always previews a new category six months in advance. So it's not like they plop a new category on federal agencies. They preview it six months in advance and give agencies time to react to those new categories. So I, I think it's quite fair. You mentioned that software licensing is no longer on the scorecard. Everybody got an A in it. What's in place to make sure that continues, that there's not backsliding, that this is something that needs to be measured again at some point in the future? 
Yeah, so I, I think, Francis, when you look at that, because it's still an important category, as you mentioned, I think when you look at OMB and the federal CIO and the right performance-based metrics that you put in place out of the federal CIO's office, I think that'll be very important. You know, our new Center for Data-Driven Policy, we uh, launched that in late September and we issued a number of policy papers and one was on digital transformation recommendations. And those recommendations were similar to what we're suggesting with the scorecard, but it's also what CIOs and the federal CIO needs to do. And I think performance-based metrics, uh, that those have worked over the years. Look at data centers when OMB set targets on closures and savings and the whole bit. And I know there's a debate about the federal CIO and OMB being just a policy shop. It can be much more than just a policy shop, Francis. And we've seen that over the years with the right metrics. And you have talked to me on the program before about the the, re, the one of the reasons that you attribute success in the Trump administration was the tight working relationship with Suzette Kent, federal CIO, Margaret Weikert, who ran the president's management agenda. How do you want to see that continue in a Biden administration? What does that relationship look like on a working basis to make that success happen again? Yes, yeah, so I think that's a very good point, Francis. If you look at the Biden administration and some simple things that they really should focus on to build off the successes of prior administrations, one is the PMA. The PMA had a heavy tech focus. I do think with the PMA, when you look at IT modernization, that's really get to legacy modernization where we're replacing these old archaic legacy mission critical systems with the right acquisitions. I know you've had Richard Spires on recently and he talked about a piecemeal approach to that. I think that's a very accurate assessment of the situation. So I would love to see the PMA continue what we did with the Trump administration, focus on legacy modernization. The other thing that I think the PMA should do from an IT perspective and cyber is specifically call out cyber. I think cyber is kind of implied in a number of areas in previous PMAs. But when you look at cyber and supply chain risk management, and there's this newly formed Federal Acquisition Security Council that was called for in law to be uh, chaired by the federal CISO, there's a lot we could do to really focus more and more on cyber as part of the PMA. You use a couple of terms in this conversation, and, and you've used them in the past that I want to make sure I'm not confusing. One is digital transformation, and the other is IT modernization. Are they the same thing in your view, Dave? Well, actually, digital transformation, I, I think they are slightly different. I think they're used synonymously. I think right now we're looking at really transforming uh, missions. And when you look at legacy modernization, you know, that's really where we get into digital transformation. We need to transform the way we actually perform missions, Francis. And that's when you get into these big mission critical legacy apps that, frankly, we just kind of keep kicking the can down the road, right? And eventually you kick the can down the road long enough, you have a big failure or you have, you know, a big security issue. I think, you know, what happened with the state unemployment systems with the pandemic, that kind of showed, you know, the issue with some of the state systems and the challenges we have there. We need to get out of the gate quickly with the new administration on, on these, uh, this legacy uh, challenge. And I think, you know, federal CIOs, I think the big challenge is to, to really partner with executives right out of the gate. They need to partner with the right business owners, get these plans in place. There needs to be execution on those plans. They need to befriend CFOs to make sure budgets are in place to support those legacy modernizations. And then frankly, you know, if you look at the workforce, you know, 
having a, a partnership with Chico's where we really look at gap, the gaps we have in our workforce and tackle those gaps with the right plans and get after it. We're not in a situation where you want to wait a year and a half down the road to have those relationships with those key executives and those key chiefs. Dave, always more stuff to talk about than time to talk about it. Thanks very much for coming on. Thank you, Francis. Happy New Year. Up next, the future of the Chief Management Office at the Department of Defense. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the job that's going away and where all of those duties will go. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The new National Defense Authorization Act eliminates the chief management officer job at the Defense Department. It instructs the Pentagon to distribute the CMO's duties to other offices. Beth McGrath is managing director at Deloitte Consulting. She's former deputy chief management officer at the Pentagon. Beth, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. The DCMO, when you occupied that job, was equivalent to what Lisa Hirschman's doing now. The legislation sounds simple. Distribute those responsibilities as the uh, OSD decides. I can't imagine that it's nearly that simple. Well, unless the department has changed um, dramatically since I left, uh, it, is, it is certainly not simple. And I think those who uh, were part of uh, the office formerly referred to as ATNL uh, could attest to that fact. And to your point, it's, um, you know, it's functions, it's organizations, it's people. Um, all while you're trying to maintain a sense of forward progress as it relates to reform efforts. What does one do to try to decide where the various responsibilities of the CMO office go? How does one categorize this probably makes the most sense here, this probably makes the most sense here? Well, I think the first thing you need to do is understand and have alignment of what your objectives are for the overall reform efforts. Um, when the CMO was established in the 2008 NDAA, it was about efficiency and effectiveness, in particular for the, the business of defense. And so you're looking at optimization of the business. And so if I would say starting with alignment in terms of what those objectives are and then figuring out, you know, where do those functions, organizations and people, you know, where they're best suited to align to achieving the objectives. I don't propose to have uh, any idea what Secretary uh, nominee Austin or Secretary nominee Hicks might want to do with this number three job at the Pentagon. But let's say they were to decide they like that construct and they want to distribute those responsibilities to one office and establish it within the cons. Is that something that's possible? Is that something that makes sense? Or is that something that just potentially subjects them to examination from the people who wanted to disestablish this office in the first place? Yeah, well, I, I, I think, you know, the letter of the law and the spirit of law are, um, I think, need to be aligned here in terms of uh, I think the Congress, certainly the legislative and executive branches still want to achieve uh, transformation and reform at the department. There's still, you know, a lot of runway to be had. And, um, and so I think what they need to do is figure out, you know, what aligns to the objectives that they've got identified, identify what the strategic priorities are, um, really get skin in the game from across the department. As you know, it's a really big place. And 
to have one person or one organization responsible for enterprise-wide reform, um, you know, isn't really achievable at defense. And so it needs to be, it's a team sport, no matter how you organize it. And so I, I feel like they'll need to assess, you know, what's working, what's not, what, with the team they bring in, you know, how do they engage them? What skin in the game do they have? then how did they get more people involved on a uh, more regular basis? You alluded to the ATL uh, disestablishment breakup, whatever you want to call it, uh, a couple of years ago. And that was where I wanted to go next. How does the, the, the whatever happens to the CMO office, whatever you want to call it, breakup or whatever, how does that connect with all of these other changes that are happening at the OSD level? And have we reached a point where there are so many things going on that it's, hard to f understand where the dust has settled and what really works and what's not working. Yeah, and, and that's why I'm sort of harping on this sort of alignment of what your objectives are. I mean, in a sporting event, it's, to, you know, we all know what the objective is. It's to score more points and win. That's what winning is, right? And, and here, what we need to do is make sure we understand what the objectives are and then what role every office plays. I mean, um, honestly, if it's cost cutting, then, and everybody agrees to that, then figuring out what everybody's role is, then, you know, you execute along those lines. But it's, uh, you know, increase effectiveness, then there are other measures that need to be in place and really figuring out, again, what, what each office role is in, in executing. I do think, uh, irrespective of the, you know, how they decide to organize, it has to be a team sport and it has to have leadership engagement. It has to be a stated objective of, of the department, else it, it won't happen. I mean, as you know, a transformation or reform of any organization is, is all about culture. And so it uh, starts at the top and it needs to permeate throughout the leadership of the department. We just have a couple of minutes left, but it strikes me you've gotten at really what the heart of the issue is here, and that is determining the objective. And I did go back and look at what the original intent of the, the DCMO, CMO office was, Beth, and it's different than what the members who were in favor of disestablishing it this year, it's different than why they said they thought this office wasn't effective. That strikes me as the major problem that nobody in DOD can solve. That's a Congress issue, isn't it? Well, I think it gets back to alignment. You know, I talk about alignment certainly within the department to achieve the objectives. I mean, certainly um, it's a big place and I worked very, very closely with the CMOs of the military departments and with the OSD elements to make sure that we were all aligned. I think the same needs to happen between the executive branch and the legislative branch. So, you know, we uh, eliminate or at least reduce the ambiguity around what the objectives are and what winning means here. Uh, so that everybody can, you know, I'll say measure the same things. Beth McGrath, thanks very much. Thank you. Up next, what's next for the General Services Administration? Straight ahead on Government Matters, what to keep and what to toss in the Biden administration. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. The Biden administration can find some bipartisan agreement in at least one area as it takes office. 
The Trump administration continued some acquisition policies the Obama administration started, and the Obama team ran with some uh, of the Bush administration policies. Uh, Jim Williams is partner at Shamback Williams Consulting, former acting administrator of the General Services Administration. Jim, welcome. It's good to see you again. Uh, you point me to category management in particular. What could or what should the Biden team do there? Well, I think with their plans under the Build Back Better, which is to look at helping small business, women-owned, service-disabled business, uh, veteran business, uh, even Native American, Native Indian, I really think, you know, the category management really, in a way, corrals spending, gives, gives you a good handle on where you're spending the money. And for all the efforts they want to do to reinvest in small business, help America, and even their their climate change green agenda, the way to do that is to leverage the spending categories that you have in managing spending, to spend under management. So I think category management is a perfect vehicle to continue to help them implement the policies that they want to do. Where's category management now compared to where it was four years ago, Jim? I think it's it's made great strides. I give a lot of credit to the agencies for adopting this. I know it's very big at almost every agency I talk to. Uh, they are really starting to look at their spending. They're starting to look at how did they leverage that spend. They're trying to understand better you know, what they're getting for their money. And I think that starts with the Office of Federal Procurement Policy. Uh, the career people there have done a great job, Leslie Field and Matthew Blum. Uh, super job there, but also work with the agencies to help them work cooperatively about how do we uh, uh, better manage that spend about $580 billion a year. What is the right mix between uh, OFPP developing policy and the General Services Administration's acquisition work? Well, I think they go hand in hand. One is the policy and the other is helps execute that policy and helps put in place the vehicles that actually implement that policy. And you can see that, you know, uh, GSA has many small business uh, vehicles, 8A vehicles, veteran-owned vehicles that are government-wide. And I think that's going to help uh, the Biden administration with their policies to increase the percentages of dollars that go to those vehicles. So I think GSA is central for many, many reasons. But for implementing acquisition policy, they are absolutely key. You mentioned the new uh, or the some of the, the places where the Biden administration might want to concentrate set aside wise. Um, we're seeing those this, a lot of those uh, organizations that are a lot of those categories that are being uh, set aside in the new Polaris contract that uh, just hit the street. I mentioned that earlier in the headlines today. Is that something we should expect to see more of, big vehicles like Polaris, uh, to help these uh, particular groups of people, categories of businesses, to be able to do business with the government easier, Jim? I think without question, you're going to see it on the big vehicles. You're going to see it on every contract looking at subcontracting goals. I mean, I think when you look at the big vehicles, that's a lot of the task order, delivery order dollars. There's a lot of other dollars out there. I think you know, if you look at you know, the spend, about 17 different categories, 10 of which are really common to all the agencies, you have to look at every one of those categories and say, where is the money going and how can we actually help small business? And even looking at how can we help create small business by investing in things that help with climate change, that help with small business, women don't, that really build a bigger industrial base of those small business companies. You're also looking at the executive order on job qualifications and who can get hired for what. What's the potential benefit there that you see to the acquisition community, Jim? 
Well, I think that most people aren't familiar with that, but late in June, the president signed an executive order for federal hiring that said we should stop requiring college degrees where it's not appropriate. And then that follows what most major companies like IBM and, and Amazon and all are doing, where a competency-based or certif certification-based uh, testing is, is really what you need for the job. And there's a group of us out here that believe that executive order that applies to federal hiring should absolutely be extended to federal contractors. Because if you're looking for a web architect, say, you don't need necessarily a college degree. And that's part of that's already in the FAR, part 39 of the FAR, but it really needs to be extended and looked at across the federal contractor community. If you think about the pandemic, it has hit non-college degree persons much, much worse than it has college degree persons. And this is an opportunity to make opportunities for those people who don't have the college degrees and actually potentially lower the cost of federal contracting. Overall, how's it going to reduce that cost, Jim? Well, if you think about, you know, having to cover the cost of a four-year college degree versus having to pay somebody who has the right certifications from, say, Google or Amazon or some other job where you really didn't need to pay the cost of the hourly rate for that four-year college degree, that's going to lower the cost, but still get you people of a competency-based, merit base that are qualified to do the job. So I think that will lower the cost of federal contracting while still uh, helping the mission in every federal agency. And I know in our group, we have people from the intelligence community. Uh, they are having trouble finding people. And, and this is going to widen the aperture for those people who can apply for federal contractor jobs and, and federal jobs. Now, the federal contractor jobs is something we've been working on, you know, talking to OMB about. That's not a reality yet. We hope it will become so. Jim Williams, thanks very much. Thanks, Francis. Good to see you. Happy New Year. I'm Sharice Hanner. Government Matters is always one click away whenever you want to get the latest in the business of government. Like us on Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, follow us on Twitter, and connect with us on LinkedIn. While you're on the go, tune into the Government Matters podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and TuneIn. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.